you know, luckily for me, like no one, no one left. I'm still with my partner now in my comedy career. It did take a, a hit at first and then it kind of skyrocketed after when I figured out in wrestling, they call it getting over, which means getting the crowd on your side, you know, and I, I had to figure out how to get over without the help from the industry and just get over on my own, basically. Hello and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, which is brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be hearing from stand-up comic Robin Tran, the very first comedian we've had on the podcast, so that's exciting to me. A little bit of pressure. Hope I didn't screw it up. Robin has been performing stand-up comedy for the past 11 years, but it's only since 2015 that she's been performing under the name Robin. Before then, she presented as male and used the name Robert. During the pandemic, she gained a sizable and loyal following via TikTok, and in 2021, she was featured as one of the new faces of the year by the influential Just for Laughs Festival. In the last couple of years, She's enjoyed some very prominent appearances on various TV and streaming platforms, including Comedy Central Roast and Comedy Central Stand-Up Featuring. And last year, she also appeared on the Netflix show That's My Time with David Letterman. Robin spoke to me from her home in Culver City, California. I had read an interview with her in which she mentioned that her decision to transition was connected to her abiding love for pro wrestling. But in that interview, she never actually went into the story, which is why I thought it would be a great way to start our interview. I wanted to know the wrestling story, but she had to keep in mind that I know next to nothing about pro wrestling. Yeah. So, okay. So I'm going to try to keep it most layman terms possible. Okay. okay? So this is not going to make sense to some people, but okay. So as we all know, wrestling is predetermined. So, you know, when you're watching wrestling as like a wrestling nerd, you're not only watching the product, but you're watching it from like the perspective of like, uh, how does the company uh, see the character that they're writing for? Right. So there's a wrestler that I really love. His name is uh, Brian Danielson, and he was uh, Daniel Bryan in the WWE. You know, he's like the best wrestler in the world, and he was also the most popular wrestler at the time. But he would always like be in these storylines where he wasn't the main guy, and it was because I think it was because he was smaller. So the company just didn't really get behind him. You know what I mean? So there was a match where I had friends over and everything, and you know, it it looks like he, you know, he did a fake retirement and he came back, and there was like a match that is like an hour long and it's like 30 people and like you lose by getting eliminated over the top rope. And so we think he's going to win or he's going to make it towards the end. And then he got eliminated towards like the beginning of the match. And it was like our heart stopped. And like, it was um that night it was in Philadelphia. I remember, and you know, he's watching from home and the crowd booed the rest of the match. They were chanting, we want refunds. And it was just kind of this, like a ground swelling of support. It was, um, a protest against the company itself oh. and it really bothered me you know like inexplicably bothered me in a way that it as wrestling has never bothered me before like i i became like i started crying and i was like i'm gonna cancel the network like this is like my first like real um protest i've ever done like instead of like protesting real atrocities in the world i'm like i'm gonna protest by not watching wrestling anymore 
And so a few days later, you know, um, my fiance, uh, they were like, you know, you're never this bothered by like what's going on. And I didn't even know what I meant at the time, but I started crying and I said, um, Vegas don't like him because he doesn't look the way they want him to look. And, and for, and you know, when I said that it kind of, it hit me hard, but I didn't know why. And I think it kind of got my brain swirling a little bit about like, I don't look the way people want me to look. And, you know, and it gets like, and it's like, what is this like struggle with gender and everything? And then, you know, the rest of the story I've told other places, like I was in my car and I like listened to like a girly song and I like, kind of like you started singing it instead of like keeping it to myself. And like, you know, that was like when my whole life flashed before my eyes and everything. And this is the part of the story that I always share with people. And I always leave out the first part where the catalyst with that is a a professional wrestling storyline because it's so inside baseball. I want to talk about the art form as an art form. And and to talk about, I'm guessing that, of course, one of the greatest satisfactions is getting a room full of people to laugh. But what is it, as you study comedy, of course, what is it about the art form that really intrigues you that made you want to dive into it feet first so you know it's funny i think you know i think we um yeah i heard somewhere a while back that you know we become like a literally a different person like every seven years right so the reason why i originally started and what appealed to me is different from what it is now like every few years it kind of changes you know so when i was initially drawn to it was i think because you know my dad um kind of did comedy like he would do like funny songs at weddings and stuff and i just thought it was just the image of like someone with a microphone like making people laugh was so intriguing to me like it it seemed like such a powerful thing and i think watching chris rock's bigger and blacker special would it made me laugh like in a way that i didn't even know was possible to laugh i kind of feel like you know when you're younger and you're watching something funny and it kind of it, it, it makes you laugh so much that you can't even breathe. I think it's because we don't really have the words yet to describe why something is funny. And I think that's kind of the magic trick of comedy is to figure out why something is funny. So when I first started, it was for a very egotistical reason. And I hate to be a cliche. You know, I started as, as Robert. Um, I did, you know, stand up comedy as a quote unquote guy. And it was the typical like. I just want to vent and I want girls to think I'm cool. And I just want a girl to like me. That's literally the only reason. And I think I used it like for a very egotistical reason is the power fantasy of stand up and, and to like live the lifestyle of a comedian, like to do stand up and then get a podcast and then have people cheering and, and all this stuff. So kind of like a, a kind of a male swagger kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, a yeah, that's, that's a good way of putting it. I think what happened was I met my, um, you know, and, and they're still, we're still together after 11 years, but I met my partner doing stand up, and then I got, I kind of got really happy and I didn't really desire that part of stand up as much anymore. You know, I, I had to change like the way I looked at stand up and go, I still love this thing, but why? And then for a few years, I wanted to just kind of like use it as like therapy and use it to vent my frustrations and to like share about my, my, my vulnerabilities and, uh, you know, to speak truth to power, all these different, different reasons I was doing it for. And then I felt for a few years doing that, I felt like a real joylessness from it and was still really depressed when I did stand up. I, I did stand up for like, been doing stand up for eleven years now, and I would say that the first like seven or eight years, I like didn't really enjoy it. I enjoyed the actual stage time, but I hated the preparation for it. I hated waiting, and I think a lot of it was because I was so depressed. And then, like about three and a half years ago, when I finally got medicated for my bipolar, and uh, it kind of went away, 
I started looking stand up for the past three and a half years completely different than I ever have. And it's that I just like to be silly and I like to, <laughs> I like, I guess li- I like to have this energy in the room where we can all be in this kind of together. And I, you know, I used to have this kind of a performer, I'm a performer and they're the audience kind of thing. And I would say like around 2021, I kind of tore down that wall between performer and audience. And it's now just, we're all in this together and I think that's such a, it's such a great feeling, but you know, in terms of like getting laughs from the audience, like it's like a drug, right. To get the laugh from the audience, but I don't really crave it as much as I used to. Now I, I kind of see what laughter from the audience is indicates to me is that they understood my joke. And, and it's like, if, if they laughed, that means they got it. And that to me is a success because I think w- what a lot of comedians don't realize is that when a joke doesn't work, uh, a lot of people try to find excuses for it. And it's always like, was the audience too sensitive? Was I too abrasive? Was this audience this or that? Or, you know, like, it's always like some, but it's usually because they didn't get it because you didn't make it clear enough because there is a structure to stand up. And I kind of love the structure of stand up, you know, which is that there is, it's like the same as a five paragraph essay, essentially, which is that the the premise of the joke is the most important part, which is like the thesis of an essay. And so if you have a premise that is tight and you hit that premise repeatedly, the audience would generally go along with it. It's just you have to make that premise so great and you have to make it look like it was something that you kind of thought of on the spot. That's the magic trick of comedy. But my favorite moments are when I'm not doing stand-up, when I'm just like with my partner or with my friends and everything. So I just see a stand-up comedy as like an art form where it's almost like learning a magic trick where like a magic trick is like, it looks like it's easy. It looks like it's... It took no work, but it, it was a lot of work. And the the magic is not that magic exists. The magic is that going into the creation of the trick is where the magic is. Do you remember, was there a performance when it was the first time that you presented as a woman on stage? Yeah, you know, I. <laughs> so this is like, I mean, the, the, this whole thing is a blur, but I remember uh, there was a moment I came out on Facebook on like, I think it was February 3rd, 2015. And I had a show that night and it was like at a show, it was called Harp Inn. And it was like a show at like an Irish bar. And it's like one of those shows where like the audience doesn't even know there's going to be stand up. That's how most stand up is your first few years. And a lot of my friends were going to be there. You know, a lot of my friends were comedians who were going to be performing. And at that time, a lot of them had unfollowed me on Facebook because I was so annoying online, you know, and I knew that they hadn't seen my post. And also, I was at the point in my comedy where I just could not uh, hide how I was feeling, and I could not hide what was on my mind. So I went on stage, and I'm like, hey, guys, um, I'm not dressed up yet, and I want you to know this is not a joke, but I realized today that I'm a woman, and I thought you guys should know. I don't have any jokes yet, but I wanted to tell you guys so that uh, I wouldn't show up to an open mic next month in a skirt and you all go, what the fuck? That's wrong. You know, so I kind of tried to make it a funny joke, but I think there were a lot of gasps. And then I just continued my set. Like, I didn't say any of that. And I don't, I don't remember the rest of the set, but I'm like, hey, Asian drivers, huh, people? And I don't think anyone was really, <laughs> I don't think, I think people didn't remember the rest of my set either. But uh, yeah, that was, that was the beginning of it. And so how... Because there, I, I believe, I think there's two steps in your journey. Of course, there's the coming out and then the actual transition. Yeah. How did that journey affect the way you viewed your career? 
Well, you know, when I first came out, I mean, it, you know, I feel like it was the first thing I ever did for myself. And it was the first thing I really did where I didn't know how anyone was going to react to it. I didn't have a plan. I just had this overwhelming feeling that I'm, oh my God, if, if I'm a girl, then every, my whole life makes sense, essentially. Hmm. I can't turn this truth off in my own brain, you know? My fear of people leaving me or people not talking to me anymore was not as strong as my fear of like living a lie. You know, I was afraid the entire time. I just couldn't, the alternative was just a lot scarier for me. So I, I remember like, Oh my God, my partner might leave me. My friends might stop talking to me and my comedy career might be over. Like I don't need, you know, but it was just like, I would rather just throw it all away so that I can live as myself because there's more potential for happiness here. You know, luckily for me, like no one, no one left. I'm still with my partner now in my comedy career. It did take a, a hit at first and then it kind of skyrocketed after when I figured out in wrestling, they call it getting over, which means getting the crowd on your side, you know, and I, I had to figure out how to get over without the help from the industry and just get over on my own, basically. So what what did that involve? So when I first came out, I was in Orange County, right? And um, there were a lot of shows there like at the Bray Improv, the Irvine Improv and stuff. And I was booked regularly there as as Robert. But when I came out as trans, it was 2015. And it's like in Huntington Beach around that area where, you know, they had a lot of the, the anti-vaccine, anti-mask mandate, you know, like protests, just to give you an idea of how, who I was around. And so I kind of stopped getting booked around that. And it wasn't a malicious thing. It was more like, we don't really know what to do with you. And our audience doesn't really know what to do with you. So I just didn't get booked. And then, so I had to figure out how do I make as much noise as I can somewhere else where people have to start taking notice of me. And so there was a roast battle at the comedy store. That was kind of when I saw an in, uh, there would be celebrity judges every week. And I was like, and anyone can sign up to do roast battle. And so I figured if I'm the first transgender person to do roast battle, and I'm a great writer and I've always loved roasting since I was a kid, I, I love roasting. Oh really? More, yeah, I love roasting maybe even more than stand-up comedy. Like so when I started just doing like amazing roast battles and getting the attention of like the celebrity judges and like Comedy Central was in the audience one night and that's how I got on TV. I just kind of went if people are not going to give me a chance, then I'm just going to make my own opportunities. Mm. So I want to talk about what it's like doing comedy in today's climate. And um, mm-hmm. I'll start by talking about I've set my Facebook settings are such that they can't or they claim they can't target me based on my tastes, which means yeah. I get things that are wildly inappropriate for me. And one of them was a t- uh, uh, an ad for a Tucker Carlson documentary about how PC culture is killing comedy. And, oh, yeah, I and know. And I, I don't know. He has some comics on there who who are belly aching. Yeah. So I want to hear from you because you've you've been doing this for 11 years, so you have a lot of colleagues. What are you hearing from your colleagues? Whether you find that it's there's there's more things that are off limits for you or just talk about what it's like doing comedy today. So, you know, what's funny about that documentary you're talking about is I was on the roast of Whitney Cummings. And I am on the dais with two of those comics. And what's really funny is that my set was objectively meaner than theirs. <laughs> like I, I was actually more horrible than I like. I love dark humor. Dark humor is like my fetish. You know, like I don't really have fetishes, but I think it's the, the equivalent of a fetish. And it's like this inexplicable. I'm drawn to dark humor. I think you know, like movies are too 
uh, gratuitously violent and I think it's too sexual even though I'm not against I'm not like I don't want to censor any of it but I, I, I find a lot of things on TV to be so gruesome and I have to like look away you know but I think in place of that is my humor and I think that my humor is maybe like the equivalent emotionally of like a, a slasher film like a horror film the analogy I always think of right is that uh, people who like slasher films they don't like snuff films right they like horror films and fiction. So what I like is I like it when humor is kind of fiction. It's kind of like darkness is is like, this is just a joke. This is like a work of fiction. Even if you're speaking truth, it's a joke in, in, essentially, right? And I think what a lot of comedians nowadays, what they do, it's a very sneaky thing they do, which is that they will present a non-joke and they will say, people are offended by this joke. And then everyone falls for this, which is so frustrating. You know, what happens is like, their fans go, yeah, people don't like this joke. And then other people that hate them go, well, this joke is offensive. And I'm kind of here going like, no, he didn't tell a joke. Like you guys are all arguing about this thing. That's not even a joke. I will defend the darkest joke in the world. Not even like morally, but just like the attempt is fine for me. And also I think that if you're going to tell an offensive joke, then it's okay for people to go, Hey, I don't like what you said. That to me is free speech. That to me is if I'm going to say something terrible what kind of asshole would I be to be like, but you can't tell me I can't say it. Like the the point is that there are consequences to what you say. And um, so I think my issue with these guys is not that they tell dark jokes is that they don't tell jokes. And then when people don't like them, they play the victim. And and it's like, it is the most frustrating thing to me is that they'll say words that I agree with and then they won't live up to those words. Like they'll be like, you know, there should be nothing off limits. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I agree with that, but you're not being dragged on Twitter for a joke. You're being dragged on Twitter for like an opinion you gave on a podcast or for like a sexual assault you did. Like (laughs) none of this has anything to do with a joke at all. Yeah. So I just don't like, I think it's a lot of sneakiness to it. Like, and I think everyone falls for it. And and it's like, I think people are addicted to being mad. And I think, and I, and I I don't want to judge that because I feel like I am too. And it's like, you have to like constantly like check yourself, you know, because like there are people on Twitter that I hate and I've muted them. And then like, if I'm just in a mood, I will just go on their Twitter and read it to make myself mad. I think there's something really, you know what I mean? Like there's something very addicting about this anger and i I have to constantly be like nope stop it stop 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 don't do that but people are addicted to the culture war and i have i have been on every side of the culture war and i've been very addicted to it and and my my whole goal is to kind of just take myself out of this culture war and like remember that that you're supposed to be funny um so yeah any all this talk about cancel culture and stuff what these guys are really saying is that they're afraid it's just fear, right? It's like uh, if a comedian says something that people don't like, what they're really afraid of, they're afraid of losing two things. They're afraid of either losing money or reputation. And I think they're more afraid of losing reputation than money. And I think they don't even realize this about themselves because like a cancel culture, right? It's like if we're talking about cancel culture in a monetary financial sense, the only way you can really get rid of that is to get rid of capitalism itself because cancel culture is just capitalism. It's like if you if you don't have a sponsor, you can basically say whatever you want as a joke. It's like so protected under free speech. But if you are working for a company, you work for you know, uh, you were working for Disney or something, then you, then now you're kind of beholden to Disney, right? And then people can tweet at Disney and go, hey, you need to fire this person. If you want to get rid of that, you got to get rid of capitalism. 
But what I think a lot of people are talking about isn't that at all. They're talking about, if you hear what people talk about with cancel culture and these comedians and everything, what they're really saying is, I gave an opinion online and like five people got mad at me. They're obsessed with being universally liked. They're obsessed with it. They can't take anyone not liking what they say. And instead of saying anything funny or interesting, they spent their whole time complaining about these people who don't like them. And it becomes this like symbiotic relationship back and forth. You know, like, you know how I, like, I don't like roller coasters and I don't like, uh, you know, all this stuff, but I would say that my equivalent of a, a thrill is if I have a joke where I think the audience might hate me for saying this stuff, it's like bungee jumping for me. And by the way, I am scared, but it's like a, it's a fun thrill because the first time I have an offensive joke and I say it out loud, it's not going to come out the way I want it to come out because I'm kind of scared. But then, you know, what happens is if you say the offensive joke and then it's over and they laugh where they didn't laugh, but either way you got through it and they didn't hate you and they, and, and you're not dead. Then the next time you say it, it gets easier. And I think that's kind of what I wish more comedians did is, is just kind of like, you know, I, I hate to say it, but you know, you can probably edit this part out, but grow some balls, you know, is get over it. Like people don't like what you said, get over it. So, you know, I, I, I like to talk about systemic reinvention in the arts in this podcast. Yeah. And I think one thing we've learned in recent years is how toxic the world of comedy can be, particularly to women. And I'm guessing it might not be easier for trans women. So I'm wondering what, if anything, would you like to see change systemically so that the field as a whole is more welcoming to a broader range of people? Yeah, this is um, this is this is a tough one for me to answer because I don't know how to fix a systemic problem. I feel like I went through this really long period where I tried to fix the world in my brain. How do I fix systemic this or systemic that? And it it, it became this big hurdle. I felt myself getting so stuck in trying to fix the big problems in the world, you know. And I don't think they're unfixable. I just think it's like, I don't have those answers. I mean, this is going to sound, this is, see, I'm like kind of avoiding answering this question because I feel like it's going to come off almost like Republican-y, you know, but what I really just- I'm sure you've been called worse. Yeah. <laughs> it's very true. But what I realized in the end was the biggest obstacle I had to overcome was myself. And that's going to sound really corny. And there are big, by the way, I've, I have to overcome a lot of obstacles and mentally, mental illness and uh, gender, race, and, you know, be growing up poor, all this stuff, but like not recognizing my own power, like the power that we all have that we are born with, that we forget that we have because of the world is so screwed up and to tap into my own power, like the, the chances that, I am an Asian trans lesbian comedian who like talked to David Letterman. If you told me that, that I would do that someday, I would call you crazy. Right. And sometimes when I get high, I think <laughs> to myself, am I really an Asian trans lesbian comedian who talked to David Letterman or have I hallucinated my whole life? Am I like in a mental institution somewhere rocking back and forth <laughs> thinking that this is my life? But I, I don't know. I, I feel like, I don't know. I mean, like, I kind of try to tap into my own power. I try to lead by example. I try to remind myself that, like, there are people who miss laughing 
There are people who really miss laughing. There are people who are so sick of everyone arguing all the time. And it's a perfect opportunity to kind of swoop in and be like the silly clown while everyone is fighting with each other and to mock the whole thing. And then if you can make people laugh, people will love you. And I know this is a lot of things that I learned when I was younger that I kind of fell by the wayside because I learned a lot, a lot about these systemic issues and the systemic issues are very, are valid. And some of the stuff that I'm going to say, there's a lot of evidence that it, it doesn't work in reality, but what I tell myself and maybe it's a delusion is like cream rises to the top. It doesn't mean that I am where I think I should be. It, it doesn't mean that I don't get held down, but I am very successful because of my talent and to remind myself that it is possible to get over through your own talent to like get people on your side. And I think I would like it if more people nowadays, trans people empowered themselves more and, and, and stop trying to appease people who hate them because there are people who love you and you should talk to them more. And instead of trying to change the hearts and minds of people who hate you, grow the community of people who love you and and ignore those people or mock them. But don't and don't engage and don't argue with them and don't try to change their minds. Like make your own community, make your own show, make your own, you know what I mean? Like, and you have the power to do that. And then finally, what current or upcoming projects or gigs are you most excited about? I have a couple of things that I, I, I can't uh, disclose it right now, but I, I am I'm going to be doing like an hour, my hour show, like for an entire month. And I'm really excited about that to to give it like a theme and uh, that my whole life right now is spent getting ready for that. Uh, I can't give away too much, you know, but my thing when it comes to preparation for shows is not necessarily just to run the set or to memorize the material. A lot of, a lot of prep work is inner work. And it's a lot, it's something that I think is the most important thing that comedians just don't do as much my fiance gave me advice once and they told me that your full-time job is not comedy your full-time job is your mental health and if you can take care of your mental health then you can do comedy for the rest of your life so you know what i've been doing recently is i've cut back on like a lot of carbs and sugar and you know reduce my caffeine intake i've reduced my marijuana use by like 90 percent the past week i'm starting to exercise again it's like about keeping your mental health in check and to be healthy and everything because like i have an impulse and i think a lot of people have this you know when you get successful you have this inner saboteur right you want to self-sabotage it and so everything that i'm doing is to not sabotage this this thing that i'm excited to get because i think my hour is very very good i've gotten it to a place where like i essentially do comedy for myself and the other thing I taped was, I told you before, the Rose of Whitney Cummings that I, I taped. I think that's coming out in May also. It is the meanest set I've ever done in my life. I was so mean. I, and, you know, they're going to edit this way down, you know, because I was on stage. I didn't know this until I got the tape back. You're supposed to be on stage for seven minutes. I was on stage for 19 minutes, just just burning the entire room down. Uh, and it was so thrilling. And, you know, I realized that I just love to be a pro wrestling bad guy. If you'd like to read a longer version of this interview and learn more about Robin, just head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. If you know someone you think would enjoy this episode, won't you please share it with them? We rely on your word of mouth. And hit the subscribe or follow button if you haven't already. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. 
I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>